This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you have your Bible this morning, let's open it to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. If you're using a pew Bible, if you didn't bring one, just grab one in the rack in front of you. This is going to be on page 556 where we're going to pick this up. Page 556 is where we're going to pick it up this morning. So we're back in Ecclesiastes. This is kind of our third set. We've done some, taken a little break, done some more, and taken a little break, and now we're back into it. Lord willing, we're going to press hard, and we're going to finish this out over the next month and a half. And I really like what my brother in Christ, John, who last preached from this book, said a few weeks ago. Ecclesiastes can be an enigmatic book, but it really helps us to make sense of things. As God shows us how he views our lives, how we should view the world, Ecclesiastes is a real-life guide to doing things in this world, often under less, far less than ideal conditions, and where the real pain and where the real struggle and where the real paradoxes of life are, hand, are grappled with. That's Ecclesiastes. And so before we read the second half of Ecclesiastes 7, let's talk about worldview and the basis for hope in the world for a second. Just a little bit about worldview this morning. So Christians occupy a very unique place in the world when it comes to hope. Because the basis for our hope, the way we view the world, the way we view the trajectory and the direction of the world is going to be different than virtually anybody else on the planet. It is unique the way that we view hope among Christians. And so if you ask somebody outside of the Christian faith why they have any hope at all in the world, assuming that they do, they will tell you one of two things. They will either tell you that they believe in the goodness of people and therefore they can have hope for the future because humanity is capable of doing great things and they just need to trust in people more. They'll tell you that. Or if they're a member of a religious community, they might tell you that there is a God who has taught people how to be better how to live better, how to behave better. And because God has revealed that kind of teaching, their God has revealed that kind of teaching, we can have a brighter future if people would just get better at obeying the rules of God. If if people would just do more of what God wants, the world will get better. That is, as far as I can tell, the summation of every other belief system. It's either centered on the goodness and the virtue of people, or it's centered on obedience of people. But if you ask a Christian, if you ask a Christian to tell you the basis of our hope, we will not answer with any of those things. In fact, Christians will tell you that the basis of our hope is the exact opposite of those things. They won't say, we have hope because people are fundamentally good. 
And they won't say that people are the ones who help us get better. A Christian won't say, well, God has given us a moral code or a law or a set of commandments, and the basis for our hope is just more and more obedience to those commandments. Instead, what a Christian who rightly understands the Bible will say is that the only reason for our hope in this life is the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christians, everything is the exact opposite of everything else the world teaches. The Bible does not teach, and you need to get this, the Bible does not teach that people are foundationally good. It says that every single one of us has defied the goodness of God. And the Bible does, absolutely God gives commandments and it does address them. But almost without exception, the Bible addresses commandments by giving them and then telling you story after story after story of people's failures to obey those commandments. Folks, the Bible is not a book filled with encouraging stories and uplifting accounts of people who have obeyed God and been rewarded for it. It is literally the story of millions of people who have disobeyed God, but because he is gracious, he has blessed them in spite of their disobedience. That is the Bible. Millions, a nation full of people that almost always have their hearts turned toward wickedness and a God who is patient and long-suffering and still gives them his son Jesus Christ to die, to live, die, and rise again so that they might know eternal life. That's the story of Scripture. It's so different than anything else the world will teach, than anywhere else the world has to offer. And so given all of that, you might expect the Bible to be kind of a bleak book, devoid of sort of hope. This is just a meaningless existence until it's all over, but nothing could be further from the truth. This is absolutely different than anything else you would hear. But that means, because it's so different, that the Bible is actually free to give more hope, to give greater hope, to give a real kind of hope than anything that the world around you has to offer. And the purpose of Ecclesiastes is to make sense of life for real, not to give you a veneered version of life, a glossy magazine-type version where everything looks good, where everything looks the way it's supposed to be, Ecclesiastes very purposefully says, this is not the way it's supposed to be. So let's explore here and now how we find real hope. The refrain throughout this book is about finding meaning under the sun in this life. And that actually only will happen as we're told exactly how things are. Even if it's not what we're used to hearing, this is real hope in Ecclesiastes. So look at verse 15 of chapter 7. I'm going to read a little bit, and then I'll tell you how I think we can kind of order this this morning. Ecclesiastes 7:15. In my vain life, it's a man who identifies himself as the preacher or teacher, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man
who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Let me just read that last verse again. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So let me just stop here. We'll read the rest in a bit. Verse 20 is critical for the way we view this world and for our hope, which is very alive in the world. So here's what the preacher has said so far, to kind of paraphrase. I'm having trouble making sense of the world. I've seen bad things happen to good people, and I've seen some bad people who have good things come to them. And we can identify with the teacher in this, can't we? You've known some people who you believe to be great people, great, honest, godly people, but they have experienced so much suffering and their lives have been hard. And you probably know somebody, maybe they even come to mind when I say this, who you don't think is a good person, who doesn't seem to want to do good, and they seem to catch all the breaks. So the preacher says, what what are we supposed to do with that? If that's the system at work in the world, how do I make sense of all that? And so verses 16 and 17 are the teacher's response to this. And we have a decision to make. Because they're odd. Does he really mean that we shouldn't try to be righteous? So look at verse 16. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Does he mean really we shouldn't try to be really, really righteous? Or does he mean something else? And for the sake of time, let me cut right to the chase. He means something else. I think I can summarize for you what I think he's doing here. All good theology starts at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And in Genesis 1 through 3, what we read about is the creation of the world People are the crown jewel of God's creation. They're created in his image. They bear his likeness. And we are made inherently good. God is inherently good and people are made good. In fact, it says that we are made very good. But the goodness of people doesn't last long. Because in chapter 3, just three, just there's one, two, and then in chapter 3, the first man, the first woman, who all people in the world descend from, begin doing this. First, they believe a lie, and that lie grows into pride, and that pride becomes jealousy, and that jealousy leads to disobedience, and when they disobey, they try to cover it up with more lies. And the Bible says all of that 
is sinful. And so in Genesis 3, we read of our parents fall into sin. Our very first parents fall into sin. Because of that, all of us are born into a sinful lineage. And just like our first parents, but by our own choice and by our own volition, we all sin too. Remember verse 20. Surely there's not a man, a person on earth who does good and never sins. So our further temptation when it comes to sin is to try to dig ourselves out of sin. This is what happens with our first parents. They try to dig themselves out of sin. They try to rationalize. They try to explain. They try to lie. They try to hide. They try to manipulate. So we tell ourselves that if we can just be good enough, what the Bible calls righteousness, if just... If we can just be good enough, we'll impress God and we'll earn his favor. The trouble is, nobody's righteous. That would require a perfect righteousness. And verse 20 says there's nobody in the world like that. And if we're putting our hope in ourselves, in our own righteousness, we're doomed. If your hope is you, you're done for. You've got no possible escape. So verse 16 has the sense, not of the preacher saying, don't aim for any righteousness, but instead, don't put your hope in your own righteous. In other words, don't think that by being overly righteous, you will somehow repair the damage that has been done. So where then should we put our hope? What is our righteousness? Because we need righteousness. We know that. And this is where anything that looks around at the world or anybody who thinks, if I just try a little bit harder, they'll never be able to give an answer that makes any kind of sense. So if our problem has been here since the beginning, and if no one can help themselves out of sin, what do we do? The answer is we look not to the things of this world, but to what is above this world, to what is beyond the sun, to the only hope that makes sense. And it's God himself who promises to deal with our sin, who promises us to rescue us out of sin. Only he can be righteous enough to earn his favor. And therefore, Our only hope is trusting in God's righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that when God sent his son Jesus into the world, he was perfectly righteous. Yet he became sin. Let me just read 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, was born into the world to bridge the divide between God and man so that men and women could see and could have our eyes open to the foolishness of trusting in our own self-righteousness and instead of that, we could be free from a pattern that will only doom us We're free to be redeemed by trusting in the righteousness of Jesus. 1 John 2, 1 tells us how this works. It says that when we sin, 
we have an advocate with God. That's one who represents or, or intercedes or comes on our behalf, a lawyer. And it is Jesus the righteous. So if we want to be righteous, we trust the only one who truly is. And this is where it gets really, if you don't think this is different from anything else, this is where it gets really different from anything else you will ever hear in the world. So what do we do then if we trust in Christ for our righteousness? What do we do with our unrighteousness? What happens with that? What do we do with our sin? Should we try to suppress it? Should we try to hide it? Should we try to rationalize it away? That's what everybody else in the world is doing. That's honestly what every other religious system available in the world teaches. It's what everybody believes. If I can just minimize my own stuff, maybe I can slide through. For Christians, though, the Bible doesn't invite us or teach us to hide or to put away our unrighteousness. We're actually told to bring it out, to bring it before God, and to trust that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he did that for our unrighteousness. He gave his goodness for our badness. I don't think that's a word, but you get the point. He, he, did, he traded his perfection for our fallenness, the glory that he deserved, he paid so that we in our self-righteousness can be freed from trying to justify ourselves, and he did the work. And so the teacher here, he didn't know exactly how God was going to do it. This was written, this was written uh, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. But that's what he's saying in verse 16. Don't try to be self-righteous. Don't try to be super-righteous. Don't live under the lie that more righteousness will lead to a better life and more blessing and more stuff and more worldly gain. Instead, confess your unrighteousness to God and believe that in doing that, through Jesus, he will make you holy. He will make you worthy of his presence and he will invite you in, into his family into his kingdom, and into his eternal glory forever and ever. You have basically two options with your sin. Everybody in this room is a sinner. I stand at the front of the line. Everybody in this room. If there's a baby in the room, the baby's a sinner. If there's somebody who's lived a great life all the way through and followed the Lord, still a sinner. You can either try to deal with your sin on your own, believing that basically if you do enough good things, the bad will get atoned for. Or you could try to minimize it, you know, be appalled at the sinfulness of other people and hope that if you just kind of deflect attention away from you, it'll be pointed in somebody else's direction. Maybe a few people will notice your sin. You can hide it. You can hope it stays a secret. But none of those things will ever really deal with your sin, and they certainly won't free you from it. That's why you need to do the second thing. You need to take the second option with your sin. You need to bring it out into the light. You need to confess it, and you need to have it and trust that it will be forgiven in Jesus' name. And here's two common objections to bringing sin into the light and trusting and entrusting it to God. 
The first is, my sin's too big for him. My sin is too much for him. Look at me. Everybody in the room, look at me. No, it's not. Your sin is not too big for the grace of God. The grace of God is greater than your sin. Yeah. The grace of God is greater than your sin. And the second objection is, why do I need to confess my sin? Here's the opposite side. My sin isn't that big of a deal. Everybody look at me again. Yes, it is. Your sin is a big deal. And it's such a big deal that God can't leave even a little bit of it unpunished. So he either punishes you for it, or here's the miracle, here's the grace. He punishes Jesus for it. He will punish Jesus for your sin if you come to him and confess it to him and entrust him with it. Do that. There's nothing you can bring to God and confess that he will not say, I take it upon myself. Be free from it. I will bear the punishment and you will walk in freedom from it. The grace of God is greater than all of our sin. So that's our sin and our response. But what about the sin of other people? The world's full of sinners. Everybody you see is a sinner. So where do we put our hope in a world where other people sin and we can't control their response? We might be able to do something about ours, but what about theirs? What about where people don't sin not just against God, but they're sinning against us? They offend us. They harm us. They hurt us. That's where the writer takes us in the second part of this. So the first part is our sin and our response to our sin. The second part, the sin of others and our response to that. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart his snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the schemes of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Good theology starts in Genesis 1 through 3. So go back to verse 21 and look at this. Don't give too much attention to what people say. Because when you do that, you're likely to hear them criticizing you sometimes. Often unfairly. That's just the reality of the world folks, you will be unfairly criticized. And the reason the preacher gives for why this is true 
is asking us to remember that we've often done the same thing to others. We have a remarkable ability to be critical of others without in any way applying that same level of pressure and scrutiny to ourselves. As as you move into the New Testament, that becomes not just an aspect of the Christian life, but it's the very center of what it means to be a Jesus follower. When Jesus instructs his listeners on how to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, he teaches us to pray both for the forgiveness of our sins, but also that we would be quick to forgive other people. At another point, his disciples ask him, what's kind of the limit for me forgiving other people when they've wronged me? And he basically says, there's no limit. They say, should, it, should we go seven times? Should I forgive somebody seven times? That sounds like a lot. And he says, no, you should forgive them, depending on the translation, 77 times or seven times 70. So either 77 or 490. I think we can agree that's a lot of times. And it's not meant for you to keep a tally sheet or a clipboard and go, 78, I'm done. But for you to say, that's a lot of times. I think I just keep forgiving you. Now, really quickly, I I need to say this just kind of as a quick aside. When it comes to forgiveness, because people can hear that and interpret this incorrectly, there's a difference between forgiving somebody and returning to be sinned again against again. Let me just say it exactly like that. There's a difference between forgiving somebody and returning to be sinned against again. So there are times when followers of Christ will endure sin after sin from people almost to the point that we'll look soft and weak. And sometimes we should do that. But I want to unequivocally say, in situations of abuse or where people are unsafe, there is a way to forgive that does not put you back in those situations. Where you are unsafe, you should not return thinking that that is part of forgiveness. You should forgive from a distance but you should not further endanger yourself. Often, forgiveness needs to take place up close, but sometimes it has to take place from far away. If you need help with that, I'm happy and I'm here for you to be part of that. Here's another example of the centrality of forgiveness because we've been forgiven grace upon grace in the Christian life. When when we take communion, one of the most common misconceptions I hear is a reticence to take the Lord's Supper because a person doesn't feel that they are right with God. Folks, that's the whole point of the Lord's Supper. You're not right with God. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. When Jesus was on earth, he gave the bread and he gave the cup to celebrate his obedience for our disobedience, and his blood for the washing away of sins. Of course you're not right with God. That's the point. That's why we need Jesus. And so when we celebrate communion, we're not receiving fresh grace. We're looking back to the grace that God has already given. But what we are told to consider in Scripture is not, hey, are you right with God before you take communion? It's, are you right with other Christians before you take communion? That's the admonition of Scripture. Is there anything between you and a brother or sister in Christ 
that needs to be dealt with, if there's hardness of heart, if there's unforgiveness, we're then told to hold off on the supper and first go and make that right, at least as far as we're able. And this is important when it comes to dealing and responding to the sin of others. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There are times when other people won't receive our confession of sin. And they'll continue to hold bitterness in their hearts. There's times when we will be sinned against and somebody will refuse to come and try to make it right with us. They'll refuse to admit they're wrong. And we can't control either of those scenarios. All we can do is remember the forgiveness that God has extended to us in Christ and be generous and abundant with our grace for others like God has been abundant in his grace toward us. At the beginning of Matthew 7, Jesus says that we often concentrate on small sins without paying the small sins of others, without paying attention to or recognizing just these huge blind spots in our own lives. He uses the picture of seeing a a, a little wood chip or a speck of dust in somebody else's life where we pretend that this giant log sticking out of our eye isn't there. So before you get too outraged, when you see the sin of others, first spend time asking God to show you the sin of your own heart. And listen, that's, that's hard work. It's hard to go there. But what happens on the other side of asking God to show you the state of your own heart and your own sin is that God will use that to make you a far more gracious, loving, kind, compassionate person. And here's what people fear with that. We fear that if we forgive people and we let their offenses go, we'll appear weak and people will take advantage of us. They'll trample on our grace. And you know what? Maybe they will sometimes. But what's not true is you are not weak for being a forgiving person. Have you ever known somebody who's really gracious and thought, wow, I don't admire that about that person? thought, wow, they seem really weak and insecure in who they are. I don't think you have. Because graciousness is not weakness. Graciousness is godliness. In the kingdom of God, those the world might think are weak are actually seen to be strong. And the ones that the world says are soft are those who have the greatest trust in the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. And so we we ask, how can we be expected to live in a world so full of sin? How can we have any hope in life? And the preacher's answer is to see the wisdom in entrusting ourselves to God. Not to be coming further entangled in the sins of the world. And this kind of viewpoint... This kind of understanding, this kind of having our eyes opened will be exceedingly rare. And so if you wonder why you don't see this a lot, why what I'm telling you works in the kingdom of God and is the teaching of Scripture and is the way that God's people act, it's because it's exceedingly rare in the world. Look at verse 27. Look at verse 27. Behold, 
This is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. This goes back to what the preacher has said earlier in this book. He has tried thing after thing, exalted in the world, and find that none of them satisfies. And now we're more than halfway through this book. He's finding that wisdom alone, it's the wisdom alone, wisdom and trusting God that gives meaning and purpose to life. But again, this is exceedingly rare. He says next, one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Here's what he means. If you look at a thousand people, only a handful of them, small handful, maybe even just one is going to actually get this. And so if you're looking around for others to point you in the right direction, you're going to have very few guides. But if you look to God, if you will trust the Holy Spirit, which is his gift to every Christian, when you believe countercultural, counter present systems, counter building kingdoms in this world, you will find true wisdom. And women, really quickly, he does not mean that women can't be wise. The point that he's making isn't that you might find a wise man, but you'll never find a wise woman. That is not the point he's making. He's saying if you get kind of, it's a poetic way of saying, if you get a group of a thousand people together, maybe only one, hey, even if you get a group of 2,000 people together, you're still not going to be among many wise people, men or women. And I know that because in other places, especially places like Proverbs 31, the writer extols the wisdom and the virtue of women. The point here is when you live this way, you can be expected to be seen as very different from the world. You can be expected to maybe, 1 Corinthians 1 says, even be thought to be foolish in the eyes of the world. But the foolishness of God is the wisdom, but the foolishness of what the world sees as foolish is what God sees as wise. So folks, let us entrust ourselves to God. Let us find hope and freedom and let us lighten our loads by bringing our sin out into the light and before him, knowing that no matter what we bring, he will forgive. And he has the power to forgive it all through the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let us confess our sin. Even if you think your sin is in secret, he sees it all. And let us believe that he delights when we come and it's his joy to give us his forgiveness. And let us believe with confidence that Jesus Christ is a great champion for humble sinners. You will find no greater friend. You will live your life with no closer companion. You will never have a stronger ally than Jesus Christ who desires to draw near to you. And then let us cast ourselves upon him. For he is tender, he loves, and he forgives. 
And as we have done that, and as we have received forgiveness, let us not believe in the systems of this world that it will cause us weakness, but let us be free to forgive other people. May we be a people marked by our grace and our courage to let go of that which might give us a fleeting moment of pleasure to hang on to, but will rot our souls. Folks, sin rots your soul. Give it to Jesus. Bitterness rots your soul. Give it to Jesus. Unforgiveness and hardness of heart will destroy you. Be free of it and bring it to Jesus. Let's pray. God, may we have the strength and courage to entrust ourselves to you fully. For you are the friend of sinners and the strength you give to forgive others. Seven times, 77 times, and forever and ever. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.